Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and the conviction, the power that your word has, Father, to bring life to us, to convict us, to bring us comfort, to draw us to the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your word would do that tonight for each one of us here, for Chris especially. Father God, we thank you that your word will return to you bearing the fruit that you want it to, Father. So may it do so uh, tonight. Please use me, a servant who is frail and weak and flawed. Please speak through me, but also in spite of me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know that this congregation was waiting for a year for Chris to be your pastor. But let me start by saying that the Reverend Chris Shaw is not the leader that the 5pm congregation needs. And I hope all of you realise that. I hope you realise this for your sake, but also for Chris's sake. And Chris, I hope you realise that you are not the leader that this congregation needs because this congregation needs and has always needed as its leader, the Lord Jesus. This passage in front of us reminds us, as we see in Jesus, all that you could ever want in a leader and more importantly, all that you could ever need in a leader. And the best way for both this pastor Chris and this congregation to grow together is to keep looking at Jesus as your leader. But we're going to see tonight that this leader, Jesus, demands a response from us. And tonight we're going to unpack these responses. Well, firstly, you must be served by Jesus and you must serve like Jesus. Well, firstly, you must be served by Jesus. And all along the Gospel of John, we've been seeing that for Jesus, the hour has not yet come. There's this building anticipation in the Gospel of this coming hour, and the hour gets nearer and nearer. Chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, the hour of the Son of Man is the life-giving death of Jesus Christ. Just like a seed, Jesus dies in order that others may live. And the hour finally comes, chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But what happens next is very puzzling for the disciples. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are eating together as they would have done many times before. And at a point in the meal, Jesus rises up. He takes off his outer cloak. He puts a towel around his waist. And, and, And the disciples are thinking to themselves, I'm sure, No, no, surely he he couldn't be, could he? And he does. He picks up a wash basin. He gets a towel. And he stoops down. And he washes each of his disciples' feet. One at a time. The disciples are shocked by this. Why are they shocked? Well, you've got to imagine in Jesus' day, walking in sandals on dusty roads, 
roads littered with rubbish and animal excrement. Imagine the smell and the sweat. Is that why the disciples are shocked? No, that's not why. You know, when you invited people to a meal in that culture, it was basic hospitality to provide washing of feet for your guests when they were reclined, when they were eating their meals. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus reminded Simon the Pharisee of this when he had failed to do this basic courtesy for his guests. But in contrast, Jesus commends the woman who comes into that dinner and washes the feet of Jesus with tears and with perfume. You see, it wasn't the foot washing itself that shocked the disciples. It was who was doing it. A lowly act of foot washing was reserved for a lowly servant of the house. Now, imagine having the prime minister over to your house for dinner. And at the end of a lovely meal, the prime minister gets up and says, now I'm going to wash your toilets and scrub your showers. There'd be a bit of shock, wouldn't there? I mean, we'd like him to, but there's a bit of shock. (laughs) It was unthinkable that a person of status would ever stoop down low to wash someone's feet, let alone someone who had the status of Jesus, the one the disciples called Lord and Christ. Now, at the very least... What Jesus does in this foot washing is a stunning act of humility as a leader. But it's much more than that. John is pointing us to the death of Jesus. There is more going on here. In verses 1 and 2, Judas has been prompted by Satan to betray Jesus. There's more than the foot washing. Jesus is preparing to leave the world and return to his father. And now he is showing them love to the end. Uh, Is love to the end this foot washing? It isn't. John 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. And in this selfless act of foot washing, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his greatest demonstration of selfless love, the cross. And it is by looking at the foot washing through the lens of the cross that we understand what's going on here. Well, how do the disciples react? Verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. The gospel accounts tell us that the disciples often argued with each other about who was the greatest. In their hierarchy, you've got Jesus, God's anointed king, the Christ. He's at the top. And then the positions of greatness left and right. And then after that, they would fight for all these rankings under Jesus. It sounds like the politics of any country, doesn't it? In fact, Peter once refused to accept Jesus' declaration that The Christ, he, would suffer and die. It seemed completely offensive to Peter that someone with such power and authority would do such a thing. And now Peter is faced with the prospect of his king stooping down to wash his feet like a servant. Peter will not accept it. 
But remember, Jesus is not talking just about foot washing. He's talking about his death, something Peter will understand later. Jesus is saying that Peter must be served by Jesus through his death on the cross. Jesus is saying, Peter, as, as I wash your feet, so I must die for you. You must allow me to serve you in this way. My death for your sin is the only way that you can be washed clean of your sin. And unless you are served by me, you have no part with me. And you have no future with God. I like Peter because he reminds me of us, of me. He takes one foot out of his mouth only to put another foot in his mouth. Verse 9. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Now, what's Jesus saying to Peter? I think Jesus is again pointing to the nature of his sacrifice on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that Jesus' death on the cross is a once for all sacrifice, for all sinners, for all time. So much so that the rituals of going to the temple to offer sacrifices for sin were done away with. And if we're likening, likening it to washing, it would be something like this. When Jesus dies in our place for our sin, God made it possible for all sin to be washed clean. But when someone calls out to Jesus for the first time, and is served by Jesus' death, it is as though that person has had a bath. They are washed clean by Jesus and made acceptable to God. But we know by experience we continue to sin. But when we sin, we confess our sin to God, knowing that we can be forgiven. Or using the words of Jesus, once you've had a bath, you only need to wash your feet. Now, some get this wrong about Jesus. Jesus is not being sacrificed over and over again. So, for example, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the communion, it's a meal of remembrance. We remember Jesus' sacrificial death for us. It is not the case as some think that Jesus is being sacrificed each time we celebrate the Supper. The cross is a decisive once-for-all act. You don't need to wash yourself through penance. You don't become a Christian over and over again. Once washed clean, you confess your sin, knowing with confidence that Jesus has done enough for you to make you right with God. Let me ask you this question. Have you been served by Jesus? You see, the cross of Christ is not an optional extra in the Christian life. It is the very demonstration of the love of Christ, the means by which we are washed clean and made fit for God. And what Jesus does on the cross is so unique that none of us can make ourselves right with God without the cross. And so this suffering servant king who humbles himself to death on a cross, well, Jesus issues both an invitation and a warning. The invitation is, let me serve you by dying for you. But unless I serve you, here's the warning, you have no part with me. You cannot be a Christian without the cross. 
You cannot say you follow Jesus until he has served you. And herein, I think, lies one of the great challenges of being a Christian. You see, one would think it's easy to be a Christian. All you need to do is to be served by Jesus. But that requires humility, doesn't it? It requires an honest admission that we are not good enough on our own. That we cannot do it in our own strength. That without the mercy of God, we are hopeless and helpless, filthy in our sin, desperately in need of a saviour to wash us clean. And I think, like Peter, all of us find that difficult to accept. Uh, When I was in my third year at uni, I was leading a Bible study with first years. Bernadette was one of the first-year students attending the Bible study. And Bernadette had faithfully attended Catholic Mass all her life, every week. And we reached this part of Romans chapter 3 in our Bible study. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And when Bernadette saw these verses, she said, you mean all you have to do to be forgiven by God, to be made right with him, is to have faith in Jesus. And I was getting excited. I said, yes. And Bernadette found it incredibly hard to accept. What about penance, she said. What about going to the priest for confession? What about mass? What about doing your rosaries? And she said this, I'll never forget it. You don't ride a bus without paying a fare, so how can you get to God without paying something? And that's the point, isn't it? You can't pay the price. Your sin is so great, no amount of penance... No amount of good works, no amount of being nice will pay for your sin. But Jesus paid it all. Can you see the significance of the cross? That the Christ, God's very own son, would die in order to serve you. And that's why Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So let me ask you again, have you been served by Jesus through his life-giving death and resurrection? If not, cry out to God in prayer. Gracious Father, please forgive my sin through the death of your son. Chris, you cannot be a pastor without the cross of Christ. As a shepherd of this congregation, never forget that you remain a sheep of the chief shepherd. A sheep bought with the price of his blood. Never think that you are better than the rest of the sheep. Never forget that you also were in desperate need of a great saviour. So keep watch of yourself and of this flock of God's people. How do you do this? Keep preaching Christ crucified to those you shepherd but also to yourself and in this way you will lead God's people not to you but to Jesus and when you stumble in sin 
Confess your sin to your Savior who washed you clean and get up and keep shepherding God's people for his glory. And as a congregation, respond to Chris when he preaches Christ crucified to you. Never tire of hearing Chris talk about Jesus, both from this pulpit and from his home and your home and over coffee and over supper. Don't expect from Chris what only Jesus can give you, for Chris is not your saviour. You must be served by Jesus. And you must get that first point if you're going to get the second point, which is this, you must serve like Jesus. The humility that Jesus demonstrates in foot washing is to be an example to all who follow Jesus. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, you might be wondering, is it the case that we should still be washing each other's feet in church? In fact, Chris, could you start by washing our feet? No, okay. Now, I don't, I don't believe that's the case because there's only one reference outside of the Gospels to foot washing. This is 1 Timothy 5, verse 9. And here widows are being addressed and they're being commended to wash the feet of others. But here, it's only one example of a number of good deeds that a widow could do, including helping others in trouble, including showing hospitality. And I think what Paul, the apostle, is doing here is he's emphasizing the attitude of humble devotion and service for the good of others. Okay, I don't think he's just saying we should institute foot washing. And again, if we understand foot washing to be pointing to the cross, the cross is the ultimate example of the sacrificial service that Jesus' followers are to imitate. So Jesus is not limiting the disciples to foot washing. He's commanding them to serve like he serves. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, in the world's thinking, greatness is all about selfish ambition, self-promotion, rising in status and power that others might serve you. And Jesus turns all of this on its head. In Daniel 7, the prophecy of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is given authority by God to rule over all nations. The Son of Man is the only one who has the right to be worshipped and served as Lord. And now Jesus says the Son of Man, he himself, assumes the status of a servant. And he serves by giving his life as a ransom, a payment, a substitute for sinners like you and me on the cross. And what Jesus says is that all who would follow him, well, they too must do the same. They must serve like their king. As we look at the foot washing, as we look at the cross, we too must serve as we have been served by Christ. Chris, uh, you've now joined the pastoral team at Bundy, and I, I want you to imagine if the team of pastors was like the Game of Thrones, okay? 
So here you have the aging ruler of the kingdom. Losing his grip on reality and his grip on the throne. And in, in the shadows you have the good-looking heir to the throne. But sadly illegitimate because he's not ordained. And then you have the brave intruder from the east. Still coming to terms with the, the northern kingdom, but a threat nonetheless. And then there is you, Chris, the young upstart, the son-in-law of the aging ruler. But most likely you are being controlled by the puppet master. The one who wields control over the young citizens of the kingdom. <laughs> that, that, that would be funny, except some of you have been in churches like this, where leadership is just a battle of egos and power, where leaders use people under their leadership to achieve their goals, where factions develop, where leaders leave in anger to form breakaway churches. Now, why have I been in this church for more than 20 years? Why have I been a pastor here for 12? And why has it been a privilege? Here's one reason. Let me tell you another story. Uh, for those of you who know our senior pastor, Neil, it's not unusual to find him sweeping floors, jumping inside rubbish bins to make more room. And one day I, I found out why Neil does this. One of our Iranian brothers, before he became a follower of Jesus, he saw Neil after the service one day. He saw Neil sweeping the floors and, and he stopped Neil in a, a mixture of curiosity and shock. And he said, in my country, the religious leaders would never do such a thing. Why are you doing this? And I just happened to be walking past and I'll never forget what Neil said that day. If Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then sweeping the floor is the least I can do for him. If Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then sweeping the floor is the least I can do for him. That is why it's been a privilege for me to serve alongside and under my senior pastor because of his senior pastor and the cross. In serving his brothers and sisters, Neil was connecting his reason for doing this to the cross of Christ. And that has shaped my leadership ever since. And what Neil says is no different to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. 
And what does Paul go on to say is the mindset of Christ Jesus. It's the cross. Jesus had equality with God, and instead he gave that up to become a servant, to humble himself to death for you and I. You see what Paul says in these verses? Look at the cross and you'll have encouragement from being united with Christ. Look at the cross and you will have comfort from his love. Look at the cross and you will see that Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. Look at the cross until you are no longer hardened and self-interested, but tender and compassionate. And we as a church, we are to look at the cross until what drives us to do anything and everything is not selfish ambition, but the humble love of Jesus for the other. Jesus has set me an example that I should follow, and if it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me. So let me ask you, do you serve like Jesus? As Jesus washed the feet of his disciples and as he died on the cross in humble, other-centered love, do you serve others like that? Do you consider the needs of others ahead of your own? Or are you always caught up with your own life, always making plans that further your agenda? Uh, maybe you serve, but, but you just do the bare minimum. To fulfill your obligation, I serve because I must, not from a heart of warmth, but a heart of obligation. And still others of you, as you listen to me now, you're feeling guilt. You know what you, do, you should do, but you're struggling to do it. And here's another preacher layering another layer of guilt on me. And you see, here's what I think. If you're struggling to serve others like Jesus, it's because you haven't understood the depths of the first part, how Jesus has served you. You haven't appreciated the depths of your own sin. You haven't appreciated the riches of what Jesus has given you as he has served you. It's very hard to do the second part without the first part. When you know how you've been served by Jesus, you will serve like Jesus. Chris, one of the dangers as a pastor is to think that your goal is simply to be professional, to work hard at, at being a professional pastor, to run excellent programs, to perfect your sermons, you know, to move people on once you've completed your one hour of counselling with them. And if it is your goal to be the most professional pastor you can be, you will not last. You will come to resent this role. You will become angry with people that you cannot fix. You will criticize people who don't run the things that you want them to at the standard that you want them to. You will be impatient with those who you consider needy sheep that take you away from your marriage and your family. This job will exhaust you as you mourn with people, as you hear grief after grief, as you become more and more aware of your own sin. This job will bring to light your hypocrisy as you see how hard it is to shepherd your own life, let alone the lives of others. This job will not reward you in this life. Think how much more you could have earned as an orthoptist. 
In his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, John Piper says this. The life-giving preacher is a man of God whose heart is ever athirst for God, whose soul is ever following hard after God, whose eye is single to God, and in whom, by the power of God's Spirit, the flesh and the world have been crucified, and his ministry is like the generous flood of a life-giving river. Chris, you will only be that kind of pastor, that kind of preacher, when you keep your eyes fixed to Jesus. When your soul is exhausted, when your heart breaks, when you see people walk away from Jesus, when you are tempted to use others in your ministry rather than serve them, fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who has served you, the one who calls you not to be professional, but to serve as he did. And he will give you what you lack to fulfill this ministry. And friends, this call to serve is not just for Chris. For all of us are called to imitate Christ. Let me make this practical for you. Let me give you some homework. This week I want you to complete this sentence. If Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then is the least I can do for him. Now in that blank space, I want you to put in something, one thing, that you find hard to do for someone else. For the young people here, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then clearing the dishwasher is the least I can do for him. For those in share houses, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then being generous with the bills rather than stingy and calculating is the least I can do for him. For those of you in difficult marriages, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then forgiving my husband, loving my wife, is the least I can do for him. For those of you who long to get married, if Jesus saw fit to die for me on the cross, then rejoicing at my friend's engagement, even though it hurts so much, is the least I can do for him. <laughs> Andy, you don't know how hard it is. You don't know how lonely it is. You don't know how much it hurts. You don't know how much grief there is. You have no idea. And you're right. I don't. But he does. When I feel that grief... When I feel the sorrow of my own sin, when I feel unappreciated, unthanked, tired, I think of Jesus as he stoops down to wash Judas's feet, knowing that Judas is going to betray him. I think of Jesus as he washes Peter's feet, knowing that Peter's are going to deny him. I think of Jesus as he washes all the disciples' feet, knowing that they're going to abandon him at his hour of most desperate need. And then I think of Jesus as he walks that lonely path, as he bears my terrible sin to serve me.
Friends, Jesus knows you. He knows how hard it is for you. Chris, Jesus knows you. Ask him for his help to serve him as he served you. Ask him for his help to serve his people as he served you. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, I pray for Chris and I pray for us that out of your glorious riches you may strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. Now to you who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.